All right, man. Welcome to the introduction for Crow Triple Seven Radio, episode 159. Jason Lindgren is with me, and we're going to continue to near the end of our decade march. We'll pick up at the 90s, and we'll come to the present decade, or just beyond the 2010s. Also, uh, so many people have been asking about Phoenix Aurelius. Phoenix Aurelius will be returning as a guest on the podcast this month, and we'll also have another alchemist along the way as we'd like to start getting into some natural sciences and things that matter in our world. But let's jump in with Jason Lindgren and cover the 90s into the early 2000s. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 159. I have Jason Lingram with me, and we are going to be getting near the end of our walk through the decades. Uh, welcome, Jason. Good morning. A very fine good morning, in fact. Yeah, actually, it almost feels like a summer day here, finally. We had so much rain uh, last month, but um, I don't have anything for the intro other than to say people remember your mothers on Sunday the 12th. That is the day when we remember our mothers. Do you have anything? <laughs> no, the film, of course, is still available on Vimeo On Demand, and we are looking next for a Seattle showing. Right. Uh, and we put up uh, on, on Teespring, we have a shirt shop, which is solely designed to get our web dress out into the world free of censorship. Um, teespring.com. I think it's called Crow Triple Seven, and that's about all I have for the intro, Jason. All right, let's get into this. Let's do it. It's 1990, and the switch has been flipped. The party that was the 1980s is over, and almost overnight. The style of everything will take a dark downturn once again. The music will no longer be happy, but brooding and all about life's problems. The grunge sound will obliterate the tight pants and hairspray of the hard rock scene, although it will go kicking and screaming into the long good night. The new sound will almost completely replace what the previous decade was all about, and the fashions and attitudes will all change with it. Go raid a lumberjack's closet, folks, because flannel for all is the new hip thing. Indeed. Um, the switch has been flipped here as we go into the 90s, and it, it was almost like a, as soon as we got to 89, so many things that happened. You could feel the change, but it goes to show you the artificial nature of decades. Uh, do you suppose the sun knows it's time for fashion to change? Because that's really the only marker of a decade, right? <laughs> Maybe the sun is making all the decisions. Yeah, there it is. Something like that but we actually know better, um, and it is a stark contrast. And there's actually, you know, come to think of it, it wasn't too long ago, sometimes I go through the listings of what's being broadcast in our world, and I didn't see it, but I saw a program called uh, The 90s, the, the Last Good Decade, so goes to show you. <laughs> well, what a great way to start the decade off right. With the Hubble Space Telescope. The Large Space Telescope was renamed the Hubble HST in honor of Edwin Hubble, an astronomer who, among other things, determined that the universe extended beyond the borders of the Milky Way galaxy. The world's first space telescope was then launched, or said to be launched, on April 24th, 1990. So way, way back, uh, we did an episode, it's probably in double digits, uh, where we kind of demonstrated uh, that there is no telescope in space, and that almost certainly uh, the images that were presented with that could not have been shot, which they actually all could. There's not, There actually used to be YouTube clips out there showing you um, that good big telescopes on the ground could replicate those with digital processing. But we showed that the Sophia aircraft was, how do you say, fitted out with apparently the identical imaging system said to be on the Hubble, and uh, we made a strong case that that's really where most of the images are coming from. 
Yeah, there's multiple folks who have uh, made that conjecture out there. And while it's not definitive, it definitely seems like it's a very distinct possibility. And oh my, that says a lot, doesn't it? Well, you know, I used to go to the scope shops back in the day in San Diego when there was more than one left, which is pretty much the way things are now. And a lot of those people were into what's called astrophotography. And as we got up into the 2000s, you couldn't tell the difference between an image shot with, say, an 8 or a 10-inch telescope of something like the Pleiades with the blue reflection nebula. When you looked at those after those images had been processed, you really couldn't tell the difference other than field of view. Well, it is the 1990s, and it's time for the grunge movement to begin. Alice in Chains is leading the way, but very soon Pearl Jam, Nirvana, and Soundgarden will all be releasing albums by the end of the following year. But first, Facelift is the debut studio album by the American rock band Alice in Chains. The album was released on August 21st, 1990. We Die Young, Man in the Box, Bleed the Freak, and Sea of Sorrow were released as singles. Man in the Box was nominated for a Grammy Award for Best Hard Rock Performance with Vocal in 1992. The album would peak at number 42 on the Billboard 200 chart, was certified platinum, and has gone on to be certified double platinum by the RIAA for shipments of 2 million copies in the United States. Facelift became the first album from the grunge movement to be certified gold on September 11th, 1991. Come on, Jason, how could it be? Um, Is there anywhere we cannot count the ways? And even the name of this album kind of shows you the intent here. But we have covered before... Um, that there are two seminal albums uh, that are decades apart that are basically benchmarks within the control system. The first one was from the Sex Pistols called Nevermind the Bollocks, as the English would say. We tend to say bullocks here. Um, but then there's the Nirvana album, which shares the, the exact same name, Nevermind. The spelling is slightly different between the two albums, but they're both seminal, they're both related, and they're marking a change point. And in Nirvana's case, they had the gall to put the bollocks of a baby right in your face on the album cover. Fashion and decor reflected the dirtier colors and minimal look of the gothic grunge and soon-to-be hip-hop scenes. A classless society is said to develop due to the economic recession. Businesses fell on hard times, and the electronic age was altering lives more and more each year. The waistlines of men's pants, especially in certain subgenres, dropped lower than the interest rates. Cargo pants, cowboy boots, floral skirts, stonewashed denim were all in, and smaller was better. Laptops and mobile phones being great examples, and you had to have a pager. Neutral colors were paler and bolder. Colors swung wildly to reflect holiday dream venues such as Greece, France, Tuscany, and Thailand. Wallpapers were faux paint effect in rich ochres. Terracottas, reds, and friezes featured Aztec ethnic patterns, and the celestial influence, stars, suns, and moons, were featured in fabrics and art. Black and white started to appear in wallpaper. The race to the millennium was a thing both feared and desired. For a lot of people who weren't 
alive or were too young to remember this period, um, the the change point is so stark, um, it's almost hard to describe how bright and garish everything about the 80s was. And as we get into the 90s and grunge hits the airwaves, everything becomes muted and almost depressing in a way. Even the music uh, tends to be depressing. I don't know, this was, you, you were probably coming of age in this era, Jason. Um, do you remember it well? Extremely. I graduated high school in 1991, so that changeover was occurring right when I was getting out of high school. I didn't see anything grunge happening in my senior year, but immediately afterward is when I saw all of the change kicking in, and kicking in within that year. I was playing guitar by then, I'd started at the age of 17, and even all of the guitar magazines and all that kind of stuff, everything was changing over and embracing this grunge movement, and I actually found it kind of offensive because here I was trying to learn how to play guitar well, and Nirvana's coming out with these three-chord songs that any schmuck could play, and here I am busting my ass for hours practicing every night, you know? Well, yeah, you know, I started playing guitar when I think I was around 12, something like that. And um, it was a whole different music scene. The idea back then was rock and roll would never die. But by the time the 80s got here, it was pretty clear things were taking a nosedive in terms of rock and roll. But the real thing uh, that I that I realize now, seeing what's being presented as histories of music, is they're trying to force the onset of rap music back further than it actually happened. Um, in the 80s, the truth is almost everything was rock and roll, like on MTV and other things, as far in as they went. And there was very little diversity in terms of race, but certainly rap had little or nothing to do with most parts of the country as the 80s rolled up. And now when we see the accounts of rap, they try to push it back into the early 80s as a going concern. And uh, I just I don't remember it that way. The only thing I can tell you as far as rap is concerned in the mainstream, according to MTV, August 6th, 1988 was the beginning of Yo! MTV Raps. Right. Um, so by the time you get to the end, it starts coming in. But even as it first came on board, it was still a pale shadow compared to the music that had come before, um, though the 80s did a lot to destroy rock and roll. I guess someone should probably call Roger Daltrey and let him know that rock and roll died. <laughs> yeah, very sad indeed. Although th there were people who came in to try and uh, keep it alive. Oasis definitely tried to do that. Some of the grunge, I have to honestly say, is rock and roll-ish. It just was kind of stripped down, you know? Well, yeah, and, you know, even up into the modern times, you have bands like, uh, what's that new band? Uh, I don't really listen to them, but I'm aware of them. Greta, Greta, Greta Van Fleet. And they really have a Zeppelin-esque sound to them, but that's not really the point. Yeah, there's still some, some rock bands around trying to rock. It's just that the industry isn't there for them anymore. Well, I can tell you from working the musical instrument retail business that we did sell a lot of guitars and things like that, but the big seller was actually in pro audio selling all of the uh, interfaces and software and microphones and things like that. Well, that's also a big part of coming through the 80s, isn't it? You know, I, I remember firmly remember when I was in a band uh, and the first drum machine came to be and one of the guys in the band said this is the greatest thing ever and all I heard was this synthetic drum machine I hated the damn thing but as the 80s progressed uh, what you could do at home with music was tripling and tripling and tripling again um, as each year went by yeah by the time you get to the 90s you could start making 
decent recordings at home, as long as you weren't getting too complicated. The problem was it was still tape-based, and the fidelity on those small cassettes trying to squeeze four tracks onto a cassette tape was mm, very lossy-sounding. Yeah, I remember it well. It was all about bouncing down tracks. I had a four-track, um, and actually, when I was in Okinawa, we had a four-track we recorded on. So that was the problem. But I mean, we're as we come through the decades, we're pushing up on the on the cusp of firmly being in the digital age. And the moment that happens, everything changes. Mid '90s ish, you start getting samplers and things like that, and that's what really starts changing the game. Right. I, that's that's one of the earliest things I remember where you could tell things were about to change is like these keyboards where you could sample a sound and then assign it to a key. And there were other devices, too. Um, but change was in the air, no doubt. On January 16th, 1991, President George H.W. Poppy Bush announced the start of what would be called Operation Desert Storm. This was a military operation to expel occupying Iraqi forces from the neighboring country of Kuwait, which Iraq had invaded and annexed months earlier. Lots of oil in this region, folks. There's always a reason for these things. For weeks, a U.S.-led coalition of two dozen nations had positioned more than 900,000 troops in the region, with most being stationed on the Saudi-Iraq border. A United Nations declared deadline for withdrawal passed on by on January 15th with no action taken by Iraq. As a result, the coalition forces began a five-week bombardment of Iraqi command and control targets from both the air and the sea. Despite widespread fears that Iraqi President Saddam Hussein might order the use of chemical weapons, a ground invasion followed in February. Coalition forces swiftly drove the Iraq forces from Kuwait, then advanced into Iraq. A ceasefire was reached within 100 hours, but with the controversial decision to leave Saddam Hussein in power. While coalition casualties were said to be in the hundreds, Iraqi deaths numbered in the tens of thousands. You know, this is when I was in the Marine Corps. This all happened uh, as, as I was in the Marine Corps, and I saw what happens when, you know, you're in you're in the military and they supposedly mobilize for war. But when I look back on it now, what's ironic about this whole thing is not a damn thing you were told about any of it was true, which is mainstream known now. Um, there were no weapons. There were no this. This reason, they, he wasn't involved in the nonsensical 9-11, all the lies that were told to pull this off. But what's even more is you look at something like this, you're told Kuwait goes into its neighboring country, and that's the straw that breaks the camel's back. Well, what about when we were told American hostages were taken in Iran? That wasn't enough. It's all ridiculous. And it all shows that every bit of things like this is agenda. And by the way, uh, Mr. Bush's poppy should have a cock added to the end of it. <laughs> well, there's a reason why they call him Poppy Bush, and it does have to do with the Middle East. The new sound of grunge is really taking off full steam in 1991. Pearl Jam has their debut release album with 10 on August 27th. Eddie Vedder, the lead singer of Pearl Jam, for some godforsaken reason will be one of the most imitated singers for the rest of the decade and even into the following. Ten will also go on to sell more than 13 million albums in just the United States alone and is considered, for another reason that seriously confuses the hell out of me, to be one of the greatest albums of all time. I agree. The whole affair seems like a setup to me, but hey, what do I know, right? Nirvana releases Nevermind on September 24th and also would be catapulted into the stratosphere as one of the main faces of the grunge alternative rock sound. 
Soundgarden's Bad Motorfinger is also, oddly enough, released on September 24th of 1991. It's really not a setup at all to create the Seattle sound and shift the entirety of Western culture in a different direction. Seriously, not a setup at all. The following year would have two more albums from Alice in Chains, as well as the copycat band Stone Temple Pilots. A plethora more grunge alternative acts would be the only thing flooding the airwaves very soon, as well as in CD stores and, of course, MTV, at least until rap and hip-hop is brought into the mainstream soon afterward, just to make sure that a whole other section of society gets the social engineering it needs. Right, and actually MTV, as everybody knows, is going to become about so-called reality TV, which is about as far as reality you can get. But this whole 10 thing, Jason, I remember people covering the idea of the album 10, and there was something to do with stars. Do you even recall any of this? The five-pointed star that went out through the decades, they were they were drawing the line from genre to, well, not genre, but from decade to decade to show just the nature of the control. And I'm with you. Um, I had family members that knew I'd always been into music and they thought they'd be cutting edge. And for my birthday, they'd send me like one of these albums and I could have cared less. Um, That's actually when I started to peel away from music, to be honest. I never got the Pearl Jam thing. It just, it doesn't do it for me. Not that they're bad musicians, but they're just not on par in my eyes to uh, a lot of what I would consider the greats like Pink Floyd and those kind of bands. No, and and you see, part of my problem was I was there, and, and when I when I first started to really get into music, the whole punk rock thing happened, and this is just a differing version of that. Like you said before, there's three chords, there's all this stuff. It's the lowering of human minds is what it is. Uh, if you look at music and how complex it can be. Um, movements like punk rock and grunge are just to dampen human abilities and mindsets. Um, These are not great works of art, I'm sorry to say. And we hear them over and over and they become the soundtracks to our lives. So a lot of people take umbrage with people like me saying that, but I'm sorry, it's true. Go listen to frickin' Beethoven's Fifth for crying out loud. Um, There's where complexity in music can take you. Uh, This is not that. And while they are very different genres, my point being, in my view, the grunge movement is just a rehash of the... uh, of the punk rock era and even the names of the seminal albums prove it you've got the seminal punk rock album never mind the bollocks from the sex pistols and then these guys come and reuse the name and never mind putting the bollocks on the album cover it's just it's a rehash slightly reworked february 7th 1992 representatives from 12 countries sign the maastricht treaty or the treaty on european union these countries are belgium Denmark, France, Germany, Greece, Ireland, Italy, Luxembourg, Netherlands, Portugal, Spain, and the United Kingdom. The parliaments in each country then ratified the treaty, in some cases holding referendums. The Maastricht Treaty officially came into force on November 1, 1993, and the European Union was officially established. Since then, a further 16 countries have joined the EU and have adopted the rules set out in the Maastricht Treaty or in the treaties that followed later. The treaty is said to be a new stage in the process of creating an ever closer union among the peoples of Europe. It laid down the foundations for a single currency, the euro, and significantly expanded cooperation between European countries in several new areas. Boy, looks like someone's taken this whole mofo over to some kind of a unified new world order or something, Jason. A new world order. 
Yeah. Luckily, we're here in the United States and it won't affect us, right? Well, that's actually wrong. Uh, Over a year ago, as so many people who have PayPal accounts and other things know, uh, they started getting notices that said, if you have a single user from one of these countries, you'll be under the guidelines of the European Union. This is a takeover. It's what it is. It's the consolidation. Um, there's there's so much. We could actually do a whole show on the European Union and what's happened. And even now, I'm still getting emails from people over in Britain, very nervous about what's about to happen with Brexit. It's, it's beyond the pale, Jason. Uh, back in these days that we're talking about, 1992, nobody possibly could have had a, a glimmering of an idea of what was to follow. From a Space.com article. When the Hubble Space Telescope launched into orbit in 1990, the observatory promised to provide dazzling and unprecedented views of space that would rewrite humans' understanding of the cosmos. But soon after, the $2.5 billion telescope was turned on, mission managers knew something was horribly wrong. Instead of rich and vibrant views of nebulas and galaxies, the images beamed back from Hubble were fuzzy and seemed out of focus. It was later discovered that a slip-up during Hubble's construction phase left its main mirror flawed. The telescope's blurry vision dealt an embarrassing blow to NASA, and the task of repairing Hubble fell to seven astronauts who embarked on a bold mission in 1993 to restore the observatory's sight, and in effect, to rescue the agency's reputation. A week-long mission in space to make the Hubble perfectly functional was launched on December 2nd, 1993. Boy, a lot of sevens there. 2.5 billion, seven astronauts, 12-2. These things are ridiculous, you know? Nobody in, in this world is ever going to spend 2.5 billion on a thing and then not test it before it gets out of their reach. Um, and since we know it never did get out of their reach, and since we know that it's all nonsense, it just goes to show. And in a lot of ways, I kind of view this initial embarrassment, as they state for NASA, as the slowly backing away from NASA uh, to make way for private industry to take this over, where corporations can't really be questioned in the same way a supposed government entity can be. It's a bit like the United States after Vietnam, you know, everyone's stunned. Oh my God, we didn't think the United States could lose. It's a similar thing to that, in my view, Jason, the idea going on here. But at the end of the day, it's all nonsense. The World Trade Organization, or the WTO, is an intergovernmental organization that is concerned with the regulation of international trade between nations. Sounds like maritime admiralty law to me. A little bit. The WTO officially commenced on January 1st, 1995, under the Marrakesh Agreement signed by 124 nations on April 15th, 1994, replacing the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, or the GATT, which commenced in 1948. It is the largest international economic organization in the world. According to their official website, The World Trade Organization is the only global international organization dealing with the rules of trade between nations. At its heart are the WTO agreements negotiated and signed by the bulk of the world's trading nations and ratified in their parliaments. The goal is to help producers of goods and services, exporters and importers conduct their business. The goal is to control this whole mofo lock, stock, and barrel. It's almost like, well, it's exactly like inventing a government outside of government to exert control everywhere. That's what it's like. Hmm. I don't know, man. All I see is maritime admiralty law all over that. What do you think? 
Exactly. Well, there's there's no separating any trade or business from those ideas. We've demonstrated it time and time again. But I suppose a thinking person could ask, if each country has a government, isn't this the job of the governments to go out and deal with things like this? Uh, but yet here we see it. The World Trade Organization, it's basically a governing body outside of everything, I guess. February 22nd, 1997. Scientists at the Roslyn Institute in Scotland announced that they had cloned an adult sheep. The first successfully cloned adult mammal, named Dolly, was cloned using somatic cell nuclear transfer, or SCNT, from the cell of a six-year-old ewe. The cell nucleus from an adult cell was transferred into an unfertilized developing egg cell that had its nucleus removed. The cell was stimulated to divide by an electric shock then implanted in the surrogate. Dolly was born on July 5th of 1996 to three mothers that provided an egg, donated DNA, and carried the cloned embryo. DNA tests revealed that Dolly was indeed identical to the donor and not related to the surrogate. Uh, All I can say about this is... Come on, man. Um, So many people online, at least before censorship, went to show everybody what nonsense this is. Among them that I can recall, uh, Dave J., I think the Jungle Surfer, did a number of clips that demonstrate the farce that's going on here. Uh, This is made up out of whole cloth from my point of view. And the problem will be is a lot of people will say, well, tell us why, tell us why. And I will say to you, go do research and use your God-given human brain uh, to challenge things like this. This whole thing is designed to convince you that the reach and scope of science is beyond magical. And for my part, I don't accept a word of it. On June 26th, 1997, the book, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone is published by author J.K. Rowling. The impact of this now long-running series of stories is still felt quite deeply today. Um, This one's not going away. It's a bit like Lord of the Rings, right? And maybe even Lord of the Rings on steroids. And uh, one of the things that I saw start up I don't know, a few years ago, was people began to question, did some lady named J.K. Rowling actually write this? Um, And there was a lot of good research done uh, to put forward, but the the reach and scope of Harry Potter starts to eclipse anything that's come before. As a matter of fact, um, there's... What's this thing they're doing now with drones? Aerial this and aerial that. And, of course, it's supposed to be histories of countries. And Harry Potter is now firmly embedded in any account that has to do with Britain. September 4th, 1998. Google is said to be officially founded by Larry Page and Sergey Brin while they were Ph.D. students at Stanford University in California. Together, they are said to own about 14% of its shares and control 56% of the stockholder voting power through Super Voting Stock. They incorporated Google as a privately held company on September 4, 1998. An initial public offering took place on August 19th of 2004, and Google moved to its headquarters in Mountain View, California, nicknamed the Googleplex. In August of 2015, Google announced plans to reorganize its various interests as a conglomerate called Alphabet Incorporated. Google is Alphabet's leading subsidiary and will continue to be the umbrella company for Alphabet's internet interests. Sundar Pichai was appointed CEO of Google, replacing Larry Page, who became the CEO of Alphabet. 
Now, here's a funny thing. Um, I was here when Google came out and everybody loved it. They thought it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. Um, as, a, as a matter of fact, we'd already come through the browser war mostly. Uh, how many people can remember Netscape out there? Um, and then the Microsoft Internet Explorer thing. And there was all this vying for who was going to be the big boys on the internet block. And back in the day, uh, as I started up my first careers that had to do with the internet, Google was absolutely loved. They were amazing. Everyone had great things to say about them. Look where we are now. Look where we are now with all the censorship and all the other nonsense that's gone on. And it just goes to show you um, that we have to reach a period where we scrutinize things out of the gate a lot better than we have in the past. Um, because right now, Google is perched to be the be-all and end-all for what can be talked about, what can be uploaded, what can be done online. And as we all know, online is the new public forum. And so basically what's happened here is a massive corporation, just absolutely massive, is now controlling human thought and human speech. And it's only going to get worse from here, Jason. One ring to rule them all. Indeed, man. I'd, I'd throw Google into Mount Doom if I could. <laughs> the Euro. On January 1st, 1999, 11 European countries replaced their national currencies and introduced a single European currency known as the Euro. As of today, 23 countries have the Euro as their official currency. So let's get this straight. The Euro comes to be on 111999. That's a lot of nines and ones, Jason. I don't know what else I need to say there. June 1st, 1999, the file-sharing platform Napster is created, which specialized in sharing MP3 files of music that had a user-friendly interface. At its peak, the Napster service had about 80 million registered users. Napster made it easy for music enthusiasts to download copies of songs that were otherwise difficult to obtain, such as older songs, unreleased recordings, studio recordings, and songs from concert bootleg recordings. Napster paved the way for the concepts of modern streaming media services. High-speed networks in college dormitories became overloaded, with as much as 61% of external network traffic consisting of MP3 file transfers. Many colleges blocked its use for this reason, even before concerns about liability for facilitating copyright violations on campus. You know, I will maintain till, till I drop, Jason, that the music industry did everything in its power to make this possible. And although the history we see tries to state it as the exact opposite, let me draw a little picture here. When the CD came out, everybody knew that that music could be ripped from the CD with a computer. Even the record companies knew this. And although they're quoted as saying they didn't want to go to the CD, they did, didn't they? But what's more is when the CD came out, which was a fraction of cost to make compared to other forms of music that had preceded it, the price went up. So all of a sudden, music got digital. It got cheaper to make what people needed to play it. And the price went up to something like $20 a CD. It was at that point that people began to complain, why am I paying $20 for a whole album when I really want one or two songs? So to cut to the chase here, the music industry set the table for Napster. This was planned and it was facilitated. They did every single thing in their power to make this come to pass. And I don't think there's any way around it. Uh, there's just no way that people are that dim-witted dealing with corporations of that size. 
on April 20th, 1999, at approximately 11.19 a.m., yes, that is the officially stated time, at Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado, two teens dressed in trench coats are reported as having gone on a shooting spree that would kill 13 people and wound more than 20 others before supposedly turning their guns on themselves and committing suicide. The Columbine shooting was, at the time, the worst high school shooting in United States history and prompted a national debate on gun control and school safety, as well as a major investigation to determine what motivated the two gunmen, Eric Harris, age 18, and Dylan Klebold, age 17, to perform such a hideous deed. So let's go back to the 80s. Bright colors, party, everyone's happy. Oh, here come the 90s, everything changes. Well, here's the date, April 20, 1999. The switch is going to get flipped again. Here it is. You guys ready for the 2000s? Here it is. The 2000s are coming in your door, April 20th, 1999. And we even know the time. It's going to be 1119. That's when the 2000s is going to begin. Don't know what else we can say about that without people losing their damn minds and uh, the internet removing everything we've ever created. <laughs> Y2K. In the time leading up to the start of the new millennium, panic rose over what was called a programming error lodged within computers all over the world. This error was called the Y2K bug, and it was a problem with the internal clocks in computer hardware and software. That problem was said that they counted years in only two digits. The projected problem was that no one knew just quite what would happen when said electronic clocks flipped from 99 to 00. The biggest concern publicly was with banking computers and, of course, the money, but the issue could theoretically hit any machine that ran on the two-digit system. Nothing happened, of course, because the IT people fixed it. There was nothing to fix here, Jason. I was working in my first big-time job in an internet startup, and of course, when the scare started hitting all the airwaves on the news, uh, we all went to work one day and we did one simple thing. We went into our servers, and we went into our computers, and we rolled the data past the year 2000, and guess what happened? Nothing, but I guess we all should have known that, because what is the numerical value of the letter Y, Jason? Do you know? No, I don't. Tell me. It's seven. So you basically have 7, 2K. 7 plus 2 is 9, K is 11. There it is. It's always there. It will always be there. And for whatever reason, the people who derive this nonsense can't help themselves. Y2K is just 9-11 encoded. And it never caused a single hiccup or a burp anywhere. But everyone knew that because all you had to do was roll your calendar forward on your servers and on your computers to see if anything broke. And long before this ever came to the moment of concern, which was New Year's Eve, uh, everybody where I worked knew it was nonsense. So you're saying in the actual IT communities that you were around, they knew this was not a problem? Yes. Because you have a business which is paying everyone there so they can pay their rent and have food. So like any intelligent human being that wants to be able to pay rent and eat food, you test to say, really, is this going to hurt our business? Will this kill our ability to make money so we can all live? Um, so like any intelligent human being in this world, you did the simplest of all things. You rolled your clock times forward to see what would break. Nothing broke. How amusing. Yep. So, with the world safe from the non-existent horrors of Y2K, we see another flip of the switch. 
the new decade, and what is called the new millennium has arrived. The 2000s were marked by what could be called a time of decadence in culture, but serious innovation in technology. Reality TV is becoming the regular obsession, and originality in music, film, and most creative endeavors are quickly becoming a thing of the past. When the 2000s kicked off, the fashion was profoundly influenced by technology. From 1997 until 2002, there was a monochromatic futuristic approach to fashion, with metallics, shiny blacks, heavy use of gray, straps, and buckles becoming commonplace. This was called Y2K fashion. Got to keep that fear porn alive in the minds of men, don't we? Indeed. Y2K apparel was made to be as dark, reflective, technological, and as sexy as possible. When the original iPod was introduced in 2001, the earbuds, as well as the iPod itself, was often considered an accessory for early users of the device. As the 2000s continued, it is often described as being a mashup, with trends being a fusion of previous vintage styles, along with a mix of worldwide ethnic ideas, as well as the fashions of numerous music based subcultures. The hip hop look is generally thought to be the most popular among young people for both sexes, followed by the retro inspired indie look later on in the decade. Colors in general have brightened up again because, of course, the dark drabness was for the 1990s. You know, that's all very well said. I don't really have much to add to it, but I did just recall that we forgot one other huge piece of fear porn as we switched from 1999 into the new millennium. It was right before that. Who can forget the nonsensical anthrax nonsense? Um, the story alone is enough to make your head spin, but I guess we don't need to cover that.、Uh, I think people get the picture we're painting. The dot com bubble, also known as the dot com boom, the tech bubble, and the internet bubble, was a historic speculative bubble and period of excessive speculation, primarily in the United States, that occurred roughly from 1994 until the year 2000. This was a period of extreme growth in the use and adoption of the internet. People were becoming considerably more comfortable with the connect of the internet, and businesses were joining in on the fun. The NASDAQ Composite Stock Market Index, which included many internet based companies, peaked in value on March 10th, 2000, before crashing. The burst of the bubble, known as the dot com crash, lasted from March 11th, 2000 to October 9th, 2002. During the crash, many online shopping companies such as pets.com, webvan, and boo.com, as well as communication companies such as WorldCom, Northpoint Communications, and Global Crossing, failed and shut down. Others, such as Cisco, whose stock declined by 86%, and Qualcomm, Lost a large portion of their market capitalization, but survived, and some companies, such as eBay and Amazon.com, declined in value but recovered quickly and are now absolute powerhouses in what they do today. Yep. When I look back now with my 2020 vision, and I was right, I, I basically probably missed becoming a millionaire by about eight months.、Um, had I got into the dot com startups earlier,、uh, I probably would have, so many people I knew cashed out their stock and basically bailed very wealthy.、Um, but when this came to be,、uh, there was every day in the place in the dot com. That I worked at,、uh, there were these websites that went up that showed how many other dot coms had fallen that day. But what was going on was all their stuff went up for sale the day they failed. So even the place I worked for, you could get computers, office stuff, anything you needed, pennies on the dollar. 
What this dot-com bubble was, was a freaking takeover. What it did is it overvalued everything, and when the truth came to the day of light, they failed and they were bought. All this basically did was help consolidate the Amazons and the Ebays and other places like that into the main stakes of power uh, on the internet, in my view. So there's all that. I was right there. I saw the whole damn thing go down. Don't let any of those pesky dot-com situations bring you down about computers, though, because personal home computers break the one gigahertz barrier in the year 2000. At this time, clock speeds in home PCs were undergoing their biggest ever rate of increase. Later in the decade, however, this race to produce ever more speed, which produced a lot of heat in the chipset, was abandoned in favor of multi-core systems. This is, of course, the norm of how things are done today. Right. And during this period of the dot-com bubble, another thing that went on is if you were in a dot-com, you had to produce and you had to compete. And so basically what would happen is the computer you had this month was going to need to be replaced in two or three more months because there was a faster one that could help you get more done. Uh, I remember it all very well, all, all very synthetic in its application and all very well planned in its execution. The first long-term manning of the ISS. Expedition 1 is said to be the first long-duration stay on the International Space Station. A three-person crew is said to have stayed aboard the station for 136 days, from November of 2000 until March of 2001. This has been said to be the beginning of an uninterrupted human presence on the space station, which is said to continue as of May of 2019. Expedition 2, which also had three crew members, immediately followed Expedition 1. Now, so much can be said about the ISS, but there is something we can see there, but who knows what the reality of it all really is, as we have discussed many times. Yeah, it's a light in the sky. It's an object. So the first time they crewed the ISIS, I'm sorry, I mean the ISS, um, was back for 136 days, going from 2000 until March 2001. And just think of the number of people still living under the spell of this. Uh, unreal. And not to mention, of course, that everything to do with the supposed ISS is becoming privatized very quickly. Um, I would not be surprised to see NASA go away in in the next decade or so and be wholly replaced by privately held corporations. And as we all know, you can't demand everything of a private corporation. You can't vote them out of power. You can't question their methodology. You can't do jack unless they break the rules of corporation. And even then, when you're dealing with a corporation of that size, suffice it to say, there's really not much anyone's going to do about whatever they want to do. It would be a bit like going up against a Google or something like that, uh, a bit ludicrous in our current system. And how many useful idiots out there support these corporations by saying, well, it's a private corporation. You don't get your free speech there. No, you don't get it there. But uh, when the private corporation controls the public airwaves, uh, your free speech goes as far as your home's walls otherwise. So there's that. Next, let's talk about your friend and mine, Wikipedia. Wikipedia is a free web-based collaborative multilingual encyclopedia project. Launched on January 15th, 2001, it would go on to become the largest and by far the most well-known and therefore popular general reference work on the internet. Currently, there are said to be almost 6 million articles in English available for reading, with approximately 48 million wiki pages in total. 
And it's now the butt of every serious researcher's joke, and this this really tells a tale. You know, the whole early idea of this is, hey, man, we're privately funded. We don't bow to anyone, but uh, the exact opposite is true once again, and we can prove it. Go do a lookup of something like the Gerson Method, who cured many forms of cancer, and Wikipedia has the balls to tell us all that drinking vegetable juice can be dangerous. I'm not even kidding you. This this is proof positive that if you are going to be online and of any size, you're playing by, by the drumbeat being played by the big boys. And here we are. We've come to the great big line in the sand. September 11th, 2001. What would you like to say about this? You know, what haven't we said about it already, Jason? Um, This day taught us how to count the ways, didn't it? This day taught us that the sky clock matters. This day taught us that news is here to lie. This day taught us that we're higher human beings, and if we want to break away from the herd mentality, there's so much more that we could know about things. But above all, this day taught us that the way the world is currently ruled is through fear porn. That's what this day taught us. Apple launches the iPod. The iPod was a new line of portable media players designed and marketed by Apple Incorporated. The first generation was launched on November 10th of 2001. With its user-friendly interface and multiple gigabytes of storage capacity, the iPod went on to become phenomenally successful. The introduction of the iTunes Store, with millions of songs available to download, substantially boosted Apple's fortunes. This one device brings about the general acceptance of the MP3 as a standard for common music consumption, regardless of the fact that it is a horrendous, lossy format. Its small file size makes it possible for devices, even way back then, to hold many, many songs. Does this mean I'm going to have to replace my Zune, Jason? <laughs> the, the last part of what you just said here says it all. You know, the average human being respects quality, and everything about what we're talking about in the iPod is the opposite of quality. What it is, is I can allow you to carry a few thousand songs, and you can have them now when you want them, but the quality is going to be a fraction of what music delivered in other ways once was. Um, And this isn't, you know, it's emblematic almost of the digital age, the lowering of the quality of everything. And the human mind is part of that, by the way. But if I'm not mistaken, Jason, Apple, which also shares the name with a music company that also changed the world back in the 60s with the Beatles, Apple Corp., they're the biggest corporation in the world right now, I think. I'm pretty sure they are the most profitable corporation in the world. And at some point, we're going to have to put, the, and it will not be easy to do, we're going to have to do the Apple versus Apple. I first became aware of it way the hell back when there was a supposed fight between Apple Corp or Beatles Apple Records and Apple iTunes Apple because they wanted to put Beatles music on iTunes, and the Beatles says, to hell with that. And so basically, for some reason, Paul McCartney becomes the face of that, or the Paul McCartney we have now. Um, and what happens, and I'm not even kidding you, is the the Beatles company says, hey, man, you violated 
our trademark or our name or whatever. And Apple iTunes recognizes and says, okay, we won't do that again. Well, they do do it again, and they end up back in court. It's clear they violated the premise of the first court ruling. And what actually happens is the Beatles, Apple, give the licensing of the name to iTunes. In what world does that happen? But there's a lot more there that could be demonstrated between Apple and Apple. Hint, hint, hint. But anyhow. The euro enters circulation. The currency known as the euro was established by the provisions in the previously mentioned Maastricht Treaty of 1992. To participate in the currency, member states were required to meet strict criteria, such as a budget deficit of less than 3% of GDP, a debt ratio of less than 60% of GDP, low inflation, and interest rates close to the EU average. The euro was introduced to world financial markets as an accounting currency on January 1, 1999, with euro coins and banknotes entering circulation on January 1st of 2002. It became the second largest reserve currency and the second most traded currency in the world after the U.S. dollar. Man, whenever you see the 11 in the modern day, um, you should understand what you're looking at. So on January 1, so 1-1-1-9-9-9, and then again on January 1, which is another way of writing 11, uh, on 2002. But I, I would say this. You know, no matter where you live in the world, if there are unique things about the place you live, hold on to it, protect it, defend it. Because what's going on with the euro is the exact opposite of that. It is the removal of variety and the homogenization of everything. And it's a prelude to an iron fist takeover. I think that's pretty simple that anyone can understand. That's exactly what's going on now. The transhumanists rejoice. In 2002, cybernetics professor Kevin Warwick at the University of Reading, United Kingdom, achieved a major breakthrough in the field of brain-computer interfaces, or BCI, and is said to be the world's first cyborg. This very interesting project consisted of two experiments, both carried out by Professor Warwick on himself. The first involved an array of 100 electrodes implanted into his arm. These electrodes were able to connect directly with his central nervous system and could send an electrical signal outside of his physical body. Using this method, Professor Warwick successfully manipulated a robotic hand using only his own nerve impulses. Further experiments included long-distance control via the internet as well as controlling a powered wheelchair. The second stage of the project was direct artificial connectivity between two human beings, which was also successfully demonstrated. Using the internet as the go-between, signals were sent between Professor Warwick and his wife. Although the effects were minuscule, this would be the first time that nerve signals had been sent artificially between two separate humans. After the experiment, it was proven that the interfaces left minimal damage to tissues they had been inserted into. This would pave the way for realistic prosthetic cybernetics to become a reality. You know, it's like with all other technologies in the digital age, we don't have to look far to see what happens when major corporations get a hold of them. Look at Google. Just look at Google if you need any clue. And I'll ask a simple question here. Is any of this digital technology-derived machinery, does it hold a candle to nature? Does it hold a candle to the perfection of the human body? And if your answer to that is no, then I suppose we could ask, why the hell are we engaged in this? Uh, but I don't think it really matters. Uh, we're going to go down this road. There are people who really, really, really 
want to see cybernetics and transhumanism come to be. As a matter of fact, Jason and I covered the beginnings of it from the Macy's organization as far back as the late 20s and early 30s. This is coming to pass. There are people in this world who are determined to try to augment the perfection of a human body with digital machines. So I guess what it comes down to is each of us will have to make our own decisions. And it's another one of those things where I can say, choose wisely. All right, man, that brings hour one of episode 159 to a close. Um, We could have said more about a few things in this timeline, but the truth is, if we do, it will just be removed from the public's ability to hear the ideas and consider them. But in hour two over at Crow777radio.com, that's not a problem. And while we never do harm to anyone, the truth is, is until we get over to the second hour, we cannot freely address almost any of the things in this timeline. And if we do, we have to do it in an oblique manner. Uh, Regularly, ads are removed or videos are taken down or any number of things because Google, that major corporation, has taken upon itself to censor what humans say and do online. But anyhow... There it is, man. I hope to see you all over at Crow777radio.com for the second hour of episode 159. Cheers.